Go. Sniper arrow on the guard. It strikes true. The guard drops. I move to the doorway. Detect traps. None detected. I enter. Left flank. Right. One hobgoblin facing east. Backstab. Double damage. Critical hit. He's dead. Footsteps behind the door to the north. I notch two arrows. I climb the walls to get above the door. Five goblins enter from the north. I fire. Both arrows hit. Cleave. You kill one and wound another. I drop on the last one and grapple. You got hold of him. This one is for Crouton. With his dying breath, he utters, The Dark Lord. We kill you all. Wait, these things can talk? I want two taken alive. I want to try something. The Fire and Water Podcast Network presents Let's Roll, the show where we discuss various role-playing games with guests and fellow tabletop gamers. I'm Siskoid, and before we get into it, a quick word for those of you who are now getting this on what used to be the Hero Points feed. It's very simple. We've decided to consolidate all the role-playing material into one show, one feed. So this feed is now called Let's Roll, and it's the home of both Hero Points, the DC Heroes RPG podcast, and Let's Roll, which is devoted to any and all RPGs as filtered through the gaming experience. If you're interested in one over the other, don't worry, each episode will be clearly marked as belonging to one or the other. That said, today we're doing something a little different, a little new, uh, in that we're discussing a game I have not played. And this is the first time we've done this, but my guest sure has. So welcome to the show, Gene Hendricks, to talk about the role-playing game of Arthurian romance, Pendragon. Thanks for coming out, Gene. Well, thank you for having me on, Siskoid. Uh, and I would like to apologize in advance to the listeners, because this happens to be my favorite RPG, so I may get a little verbose in this episode. What we like here is passion, <laughs> that you're very passionate about this game. Uh, hang on, let me get a d20 out so I can roll my passion. <laughs> True. Uh, that's going to feature in. We're going to talk about the mechanics and the setting and the, uh, you know, all, all the, that good stuff. But first, I just want to ask you, what's your general history with the role-playing hobby? This isn't the only game you've played. No, 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 no. Not, not a, by a long shot. I got into role-playing through, as many people did, Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, this was the second edition, Advanced. And it was, I want to say... Like fifth or sixth grade. I don't remember entirely when, but I was on the younger side. Uh, my friends Rob and Frank introduced me to it. And it was like the worst kind of Monty Hall gaming. You know, the when I joined Frank's character, it was a demigod and we were doing all these weird things. But it was it was fun. <laughs> From that, I got into things like Battletech and Marvel superheroes. Uh, but D&D seemed to be more or less the primary focus. I uh, several more of my friends joined in and we, you know, we had group sessions. I want to say at least once a month. At someone's house, usually Adam Wirt's house, my uh, my buddy from the Quantum Cast, and uh, it would be D and D, it would be Marvel, it would be you know, oh, I just got this, let me try this. But this continued all through college, and college is where I get introduced to Pendragon, and there because there was an actual gaming club at the University of Pittsburgh, we would do all these different things. It's like, hey, have you ever played Tune? Nope. Never let's do this one off session. And so I tried all kinds of different games while I was there and it just kept going. Even after I graduated, I was I actually to keep in touch with people. I started running a play by email Star Wars D6 game, which still exists out on the Web. I would write up the turns as actual prose and 
then people could, okay, well, we're going to start this next portion. Make sure you read this so you know what happened. If people think that's kind of insane, I will admit to having done similar things, not with Star Wars, but other things. So you're really not alone. <laughs> Neither of us are alone in this. So if it sounds crazy, be sure that there is a part of this hobby that, that is doing that, even as we speak. Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. It's a lot easier now. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. Yeah, back, back in ye olden times, <laughs> when you, you didn't have Skype, <laughs> we would actually have to do email and so on and so forth. But even up till today, I currently am running a D&D 5th edition game for my friends. We had done the Class 1000 podcast, which was the actual play of a Marvel superheroes module. Let's talk about Pendragon itself. Uh, in Pendragon, players take the role of knights performing chivalric deeds in the tradition of Arthurian legend. Uh, it was originally written by Greg Stafford and published by Chaosium in 1985. Then it was acquired by Green Knight Publishing, which seems very appropriate, uh, who in turn passed on the rights to White Wolf Publishing in 2004 and White Wolf to Nocturnal Media in 2009, who updated and reissued the fifth edition originally published by White Wolf but in 2018, it returned to Chaosium, uh, and there's a sixth edition coming out soon. So there's been many iterations, but the original won several industry awards, and it's consistently been on the best of lists. And I've never played. I do own a copy. It's the 1990 core book. The original was actually a box set. And that's been my one criterion when approached to do an episode of Let's Roll. I have to at least own the game. You know, I can so I, I can look through it, or maybe I've always wanted to play it, which in this case is kind of true. But you more than own it. You've run it, right? You've been the yep. game master of these things. Mm -hmm. You've played it. What's your specific history with Pendragon? Did you get that an original box, or which edition did you come in on, and what edition are you using now? Well, I started out with the fourth edition, and the fourth edition was probably the biggest outlier of it because it actually included rules for magic. Now, right. in editions one, two, and three, and edition five, <laughs> you have no magic because what Greg Stafford found out is that Arthurian magic is wonderful, but does not mix with knights. So you would either have to have an all-magic user party or an all-knight party. You cannot mix the two, because if you think of the movie Excalibur, Merlin casts a spell so that Uther can get with a green. And when he talks later on about it, he said, I had, it took me nine moons to recover which means he actually slept for nine months to get back his energy. Not exactly great for adventuring, you know? Magic is more of a force that, that's like, it's like a strangeness mm -hmm. in the stories. So, like you mentioned Excalibur, I just saw the Green Knight on, uh, on the big screen. And that's very much, it felt like a Pendragon... You know, it felt it felt more like the romances than the Hollywood Camelot right. that some people might be, you know, more uh, conversant with. And in there, well, the Green Knight itself is, you know, there's magic and people being other people, and all of that is kind of exterior. I, I would I would say it's akin to, you know, if people don't know one work, maybe they know the other. Uh, it's kind of like Tolkien's take on magic. I think like right, it's hard to play Gandalf in a Lord of the Rings 
RPG, just like it would be tough to play Merlin. It's not really the role. They're not really PCs. They're not player characters. Yeah. They're more outside. I, I think it's kind of the same for this, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Magic is never meant to be something that you can quantify. But back to your original question. <laughs> so I started playing with fourth edition when I was in college. And this was, I want to say, I got introduced to it probably like 95, 96, somewhere in that area, by my good friend and fraternity brother, Kurt. He's about 10 years older than I am. He still lived in the Pittsburgh area, would come back to the fraternity house every now and again, and we got to talking. We both love Arthurian stuff. He had this this game, so some of the fraternity brothers and other friends joined in, and we got a game going. I loved it from the start, because it is a... St- a narrow focus. It is, you are a knight in Arthurian times. And it is just that. But there are plenty of different customizations you can do. So it's not like everyone's the exact same character. I mean, even if you come from the same culture and religious background, everyone is not the same character because of things we will get into later and the the way the random roles work. But since I got into that, I, I was basically hooked Excalibur being one of the formative movies. I saw very young, probably too young, but I saw the, (laughs) I saw the HBO edited version where a certain, um, rape scene does not exist. Okay. That was a bit of a shock when I got on DVD, (laughs) I guess, so. (laughs) (laughs) but I've always loved Arthurian stuff. So this, this was just perfect for me. And then going on, Kurt ran, the game for a good long while and we had you know okay well let's start a new game and use this resource and this this resource being the great pendragon campaign and what that is is called ocd in book form because it is a year by year going from before arthur was born until after he's dead accounting with game mechanics and everything so it's over 80 years worth of stuff Greg Stafford pulled from all the different sources. And it is, I, I like to think of Pendragon as the Batman, the animated series for King Arthur, whereas Batman, the animated series took, Oh, this is great from the comics. And this is great from the movies. And this is great from the TV show and blends it into a wonderfully cohesive and well-told whole. That's what Greg Stafford did with Pendragon with all, oh, here's the Welsh legends and here's La Morte Arthur and here's Excalibur and here's these novels over here and just blends it together and it's it works wonderfully. Yeah. And you get to insert your knight into that saga, yes. basically. Knights of the Round Table, we shall always come together in a circle to hear and tell of deeds good and great. Do you think it's important to be interested in Arthurian stuff to really enjoy this game properly like do you need to like we all started with Dungeons and Dragons I say all but you probably most of us start with yeah. Dungeons and Dragons and exactly your experience you know we're kids it's a Monty Hall campaign <laughs> we're just picking up treasure killing monsters it's a video game you know especially at that time when video games couldn't really do that you know it was that outlet Pendragon is like so much more adult because of its focus because it is more based on Arthurian romance than it is any kind of fantasy. It's less about the action than it is about the values and the honor and the, you know, there's just something about Pendragon that just feels much more literary. So is it for serious gamers or, 
you, you know, do you need to have that background to properly enjoy it? What do you think? Well, I can tell you from experience that no, you don't. Uh, because okay. my wife was introduced to it when she was my girlfriend and she wanted to get involved in play and she didn't know a whole lot about Arthurian stuff. She was familiar with it probably from the sword in the stone or Camelot, but nothing real deep. And she played all the way up through the last campaign I ran, which just fell apart because we had to move. She enjoyed playing it even with all the um, generational stuff, which we'll get into she had a great time. So no, you can be a serious gamer with no Arthurian knowledge. You can be a serious gamer with Arthurian knowledge, or you can be a relatively light gamer of either of those stripes. And I think everyone can enjoy it because of the way it's presented. Because there, there's so much, I mean, probably you could play Pendragon and give it more of a, a Hollywood feel if you wanted, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the mechanics are there. If you, if you really want it to be, you know, Hollywood's version of Camelot or Ivanhoe or something, <laughs> you could technically, it's, it would still work, but I think you'd be missing a lot of the flavor of this. Because it's, it's a little bit like, like I just said, I just saw The Green Knight, so it really looms large in my mind right now because, you know, it was a coincidence because we planned this almost a year ago, probably, this, this show. I, I wasn't thinking of doing it at the same time, but the movie is so much about the values and the, I mean, it, it, it is almost an anti-action movie. In that sense, mm. <laughs> I mean, how does it play really? Is it less action? Is it you read the book and it feels like it's I don't know, it's more about the role playing of virtues and the character and the character struggling with certain values that must be embraced by a knight of whatever culture. You know, how would you scale it on t in terms of uh, how much action there is in any given <sighs> session? Well, a lot of that depends on the era that you're playing in. Now, Pendragon is actually broken up into eight distinct time periods. So if you're in what's known as the Conquest period, which is where Arthur has already pulled the sword from the stone, is now fighting all of the rebellious kings to become high king, there's a lot of action every year because you're going out and you're fighting a battle. Or if you're in the tournament period, you're going out and you're doing jousts or you're doing uh, swordsmanship at a, a grand tournament. But if you're in the romance period, eh, there might be the occasional thing. But yeah, in that point, it is much more role playing and things like that. So a lot of it depends on where you are in the timeline. But I've found that even the role-playing side of things, there's a lot of random roles that you can work in. There are things called feast tables. So you're at a feast, right? And things will happen at said feast. And you randomly encounter this and, okay, roll, what'd you get? Oh, well, you know, this, this lady over here is starting to flirt with you. Do you want to flirt back? Things of that nature. So there's enough in the role-playing that's, still random that can it can make it exciting for players i've played it but i think i've run it actually more than i played it and i don't recall anyone even at the games i ran at a convention for people i had, didn't know who they were and had never played pendragon before no one has ever been bored normal rpg you say well it's you decide at the beginning, it's set during the tournament era. And then it, every session would be the tournament era. But this isn't the case, because this is really told over the several decades. When you talk about all these eras, they would actually be part of your campaign 
you know, if it proceeded for enough sessions, because, and tell me if I'm wrong, but the game is basically set for you to have an adventure every year. And then there's all the off time where you're managing your estate and you're having relationships and uh, and whatever, and you have to cover that, I imagine. But really, time moves much faster than in, let's say, a D&D story where you're just traveling from one dungeon to the other and it seems like you're doing day by day. In Pendragon, actual generations can pass you by and your character must give the torch over to their heir. And, you know, you're really playing that family saga. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's one of the things I really like about it. I've had, I think it's happened twice when I've been running it where we've had the characters Okay, well, hey, your knight's getting up there. It's time for him to pass the torch. Oh, okay, well, this son is now going to be the primary character. And let me back up a little bit. The way Pendragon works as far as characters is it's encouraged that you have multiple characters. And the reason for that is the damage system is so intense and the healing is so slow that it is possible for your character to be off screen for the entire adventuring year. So, oh, well, here's my backup. Then you're already used to, okay, I have these two knights. But yes, the way it's figured is, okay, if you think of the Dark Ages and the road quality and things like like that, you really couldn't travel except in the summer. So the summers when all the wars happen, when all the adventuring happens, etc. Then in the winter, if you have land, that's where you take care of that. If you don't, you still have other duties to attend to. That's where you do your, we call them family roles. And that's, okay, are you married? No. Do you want to be? Well, you have to court, etc. If you are married, well, do you have a child this year? If you have existing children, do they survive? Remember, dark ages. Yeah. So essentially, if a child got to 10 after rolling every year to see whether or not they survived, then they were considered, oh, well, that's fine. They are now going to make it to adulthood. And we've had several characters that had half their kids die just because that's the nature of medicine. But also every year in that winter phase is when you improve your character. So, yes, you're getting older, but you're also getting more skilled in certain things. You can actually change your statistics every year you can say well this year i'm going to concentrate on getting stronger and your strength goes up by one point things like that eventually it starts to go down yes once you hit a certain age then you get what is known as aging roles now it is possible in an aging role to not have any statistics affected that hasn't been my experience in real life <laughs> usually what happens is you get something that goes down by one and your attributes are size, dexterity, strength, constitution, and appearance. So one of those gets to a three, you're now bedridden. You cannot go anywhere. When one of those hits a zero, you're dead. So yes, it is technically possible to be ugly to death. <laughs> I imagine, um, do you have justifications for that if it happens? Yes, it's um, because usually when you roll that your appearance has gone down it's because you got the pox so right. now you have so you know so there's a bit of a physical there. manifestation yeah. of an internal issue right okay <laughs> so yes so you will be playing your your heir probably it's not the same character but you can play the son of your character or the daughter of your right. character and, and keep like a that investment i think that, yeah 
Yeah. And when, when you roll the son of a existing character, what you will actually do is anything that your current character has very high influences the younger character. So let's say that uh, the father is the bravest knight around. Well, guess what? You now have a bonus when you're rolling up your son to see what happens there. It's never going to be one-to-one, but it is very consistent going through. You are the, yeah, the apple of that tree. We're still talking about setting, and Pendragon, at least my edition, kind of provides a... It's all set in Salisbury. I mean, that's the one that they're giving as a default. Right. A home for your knight, and your knights will be in Salisbury, and that, that gives you like a little province where that action can take place. I don't know if it's because maybe the Arthurian legends don't talk about it much, so it's a good place. <laughs> well, it's uh, the main thing is, if you look at the map, yeah. Salisbury is basically right in the damn middle. It's also the location of Stonehenge, so there's a lot that you can set in that area. Now, when I first started playing, Kurt had created a whole thing for the county of Lambor, more to the north, so he was much freer in doing what he wanted to do, still built on the framework of what's going on. But it was, okay, well, now you have someone, uh, the the Count was from the Daganis clan. So, oh, well, now you have all this going on in the background that Salisbury doesn't have. You can set it wherever you want. It just, it's mainly in Salisbury just due to that central location. That's the main thing. And it's an example of what you can do with whatever, wherever you want to set it. Are your games in Salisbury or did you also? No, I, I went with Salisbury because a lot of what is in the great Pendragon campaign is they assume that you are playing in Salisbury. So you have, okay, this is what's going on in Arthur's court, but here's what's going in the Salisbury court. So it's already built in. I figured much easier for me to do that. But if you don't want to play a knight in the court of King Arthur or, you know, in the surrounding counties. I don't know about later editions, but since I wanted to play Pendragon, I did collect a few books at the time from Chaosium mm-hmm. in the, like the first run. And, and they do have options. I mean, if you want to play, uh, there's a book called Land of Giants. If you want to play Vikings, like uh, more in the tradition of Beowulf, that gives you that information. If you want to play Picts, which are, you know, primitive uh, Scotsmen, I guess. There is a book called Beyond the Wall. If you want to play Celts, Pagan Shore gives you Ireland in there. So there is like a wider range of European settings. And they never went... I mean, I feel like this is a a game that would have done samurai really well as well. You know, it's like you could have done very different cultures that have honor systems. You know, where's my Klingon source book? You know, you could do... (laughs) No, you could play Pendragon with... You know, you could just adjust which virtues are actually important and whatnot. Right. And and play it that way, because any warrior culture actually could play well with Pendragon. Yeah, the way it's set up, it works well for anything, any warrior that has a code. So, yeah, you could do samurai, you could do Klingons, you could do whatever. But remember what I said about the OCD. Right. (laughs) Uh, Greg Stafford was focused on Arthurian legend. So... There ain't no Japanese in (laughs) King Arthur's time. Therefore, they're not involved. Now, what happened in the fifth edition, and this is what I normally use now is the fifth edition, is all those disparate books got combined. And now there is a supplement called the Book of Knights and Ladies. And that gives you all of these cultures 
all of these religions that you can go through and you can either roll randomly, which I like to do just because I like the the challenge of building a character randomly, or you can pick from it. So you can say, oh, well, I, I want to be a Germanic pagan. You're in Germany. You have this. Here are the, uh, the traits that you have to worry about. Here's the special skill you get. So it's all combined into that one volume now. So it's very diverse characters, even rolling randomly. Lancelot, you will be my champion. Well, let's talk about character generation and character use, I guess. Everyone's a knight. I mean, that's that was the big innovation at the time, was that we were used to choices of profession, or as mm -hmm. D&D called them, classes. But this was focused on a single class, the warrior class, the, the, the knight, the paladin. Everybody's a paladin, more or less. So can you do a story with just one class was the question at the time. They proved that you could. And all the basic stuff, you know, attributes, skills, background, this is all seemed very normal. But then they added personality traits and passion. Mm -hmm. So this is really the core of what makes Pendragon interesting for the role player, I think. Let, let's divide this in, into the, the two components. Virtues versus vices, which is basically the personality traits. Uh, and then we'll talk about passions. But uh, how does that work? The way it's set up is you have, I believe there are 20 personality traits, and they are diametrically opposed. So you have chaste versus lustful, energetic versus lazy, etc., etc. And the virtues are on the left-hand side. I use air quotes on virtues on the left-hand side, and the vices are on the right-hand side. And when you generate your character, you roll 3d6 down the left-hand side. And then the right-hand side is... 20 minus what you just rolled. So, for example, my first character, which I just happen to have the character sheet here, his chaste is a 10, therefore his lustful is a 10. He is right middle of the road. But you go all the way down, and the last one is valorous versus cowardly. His valorous is a 22. And that wasn't randomly rolled. That was randomly rolled and then built up over a couple years right. of actual gameplay. Right. And Sir Aaron, will his character sheet will be in the show notes of this podcast with other material. So if you want to see what Pendragon kind of looks like, uh, what the, the, the rules are, what the art looks like, I will be putting up images, including your very own character sheet. The way it works, basically, is anything for Pendragon, any single thing, skill, stat, trait, passion, whatever, that is 16 or higher, you're famous for. You are known for that. So Sir Aaron is known for his valor. You get glory for that because you're known for it. Therefore, you get glory for it. Like, let's go back to the chaste versus lustful. If you're in a situation, you have a 10 versus a 10. Player can say, okay, well, I'm just going to play it however I want. But if you have something that is famous, like Valorous for this character, then you kind of driven to that. I can't run away. If you do try and go the other way, you have to roll for it and see if it works. Then there are other instances where the adventure will actually say, okay, you're going up against a giant. This thing is huge. In order to attack the giant, you must make a successful Valorous roll. So if your Valorous is 16, this is what's known as a roll under system. Whatever your trait is, let's say that 16, you have to get your D20 to get a result below that number. And that's a success. But if you roll a 17, you fail. You 
are not able to summon up the courage to attack that giant. That's how they influence the gameplay. It's a guide. The players are able to look at it and say, okay, well, this character is normally going to act in this manner. And, like I said, in the winter phase, you can change this. You can stay spend a whole year and say, I'm going to adjust this personality trait by one point, which affects the opposite. So if I want my chase to go up by one and I succeed in that, my lustful automatically goes down by one. If I bring it back to the Green Knight again, I, I'll do that you know, as an example. <laughs> this is a story, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, is the story of a knight who struggles with exactly that virtue, valor. Although in the movie, his feet are made of many kinds of clay. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, it really is kind of a takedown of the chivalric code in a way. But but really, the, the big problem in the poem, in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, is his struggle with valor, with courage. He is a character that is not courageous and struggles with cowardice. This is exactly what Greg Stafford is, is getting to with this system. That code of chivalry imposes certain choices and then certain roles uh, and and the focus is on that rather than on doing whatever you want, you know. That actually brings me into the next way that these personality traits affect the gameplay. On the character sheet, there are six traits that have a dot next to them. Those would be energetic, generous, just, merciful, modest, and valorous. If the scores of those six add up to 80 points or more, you get what's known as the chivalry bonus. That means you are a chivalrous knight. That chivalry bonus is plus three to your armor. So that's three points of damage you don't have to take anymore, even if you're not in armor. Also, there's what's known as the religious bonus. Now, the religious bonus, there are as many religious bonuses as there are religions in the game. And the traits that are required for those change per religion. Of course. So Sir Aaron here happens to be a British pagan, what you would consider to be a Celt now as far as worshiping the green man, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So those on the character sheet, you would underline his religious traits are lustful, energetic, generous, honest, not bad so far, and proud. So proud is diametrically opposed to modest. So he can either be on the chivalrous side going for the modesty, or he can be on the religious side going towards the proud. And if each one of those is 16 or more, you get a special bonus. And I'll just go with the ones I remember because Aaron is not a religious knight. If you are a Roman Christian and you have the religious bonus, you get plus six to your hit points. If you are a Wotanic German pagan, if you wish, you get an extra D6 to your damage, which is pretty good. Yeah, the gods decide, you know, give you different abilities mm -hmm. in, in that sense. I like that. And I, I like how what really what they've done is give you a dilemma to play. Yeah. I can be a great knight or I can follow my faith. And the two are not always, you know, in, in accordance with one another. If it's not aligned, what bonus am I going for? But also what values do I espouse? And then there's going to be moments where my character is going to be confused as to what to do because there is like that ingrained faith which is probably part of his upbringing so mm -hmm. it's probably you know it's probably more integrated already and then there's the thing that I want to become the knightly virtue is is one thing that's what I'm striving for but at the same time it goes against what's ingrained in me so the game has this this system that 
that is promoting role-playing and, like, thoughtful role-playing. Yes. Yeah. I, I have to say that, much like in Arthurian lore, the Christians have it easy. <laughs> because all their religious traits are on the left-hand side, which is where all the chivalrous traits are. So, they don't have as much of a diametric, but it's still, it's okay. I am this far from getting my chivalry bonus, but in order to do that, I have to not do this religious thing. How do I want the character to go? It's, uh, and it's a slow progress too, as far as um, the mechanics go. And we'll get into that a little bit, a little bit later, but it's, you only can go so far every year, which is why you want to go out and you want to do these adventures because that gets you stuff in the winter phase. How do passions get into it? There are four standard passions. Loyalty Lord, and that's your liege lord, the one you've actually sworn the oath to. Your love of your family, your hospitality, and your honor. Now, there can be other ones that develop over time. For example, we had three knights that were going on an adventure, and this was in Anglia. So this is off on the eastern side of England. They met what is known as a black dog. Now, some people may be familiar with this. It's a uh, spiritual canine, can do decent damage. If you don't kill it, or if you don't get a, give it a certain level of wound, whatever damage you do to it hits you. So the first guy... Rolls, he hits, he does, I, I want to say it's like 12 points of damage. Oh, well, somehow you take 12 points of damage. The next guy, same thing. He roll, he hits and he rolls and it just happens to be 12 points of damage. Well, you take 12 points. The third guy rolls, misses. The black dog bites him for, say it with me now, 12 points of damage. One of the guys there actually developed from that encounter a passion, fear black dogs. A negative passion. You can have negative passions. So the way it works in the game is you can use this to your advantage. Back to Sir Aaron as our example character. His loyalty lord is a 16. So if he sees his lord in trouble in a battle and he says, I'm going to go, and I'm going to save my lord. I want to become impassioned. Okay, how does that work? Well, you roll your passion. If you get below the number you succeed you get plus 10 to any skill you want if you're in battle it's probably your sword or your lance if you hit it right on the nose that's a critical success now you either get plus 10 to a skill or you double your skill so in for sword sir aaron has a 15 skill so if he just succeeded he would have a 25 if he critted he would have a 30 if he failed he would just he would feel melancholy oh i i wish i could feel better about this, and you actually get minus five to your skills because you just, you just couldn't bring yourself to do it. If you fumble, which is rolling a 20 on a skill that is uh, less than a 20, you go mad. You tried to work yourself up so much and completely and utterly failed at it that your mind broke and you become a GM character for however long GM says you're a GM character. So de depression, basically. Essentially, yeah. It's If you think about it, going back to what probably a lot of people have seen, which would be Excalibur, when Lancelot and Guinevere see the sword thrust in the ground next to them after they have consummated their affair... Lancelot, in my mind, tries a loyalty lord passion to 
oh, I need to bring this back to Arthur and prove that I'm his man, and fumbles. Goes nuts, runs off into the woods, and next time you see him, he's the mad monk when Percival's on the ground quest. So you lose control of your character due to what the game calls melancholy. Exactly, yes. It has happened. <laughs> I actually had to uh, take my wife's character sheet at one point. So, sorry. Uh, the character just good, strips off their armor, runs out, and is gone. Give me. <laughs> but that's another reason to have backup characters, because it's not like you're out of the game. So, okay. Well, I guess it's time for my son to step up. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And then because it gives the that other character something to play as well, because they're replacing someone. That, that just happened. Right. Yeah, right. And it's like, oh, you know, the, this was supposed to be an adventure that had all these senior knights on it. Now we had the one who's just knighted two years ago. Barely a, out of the squire mm-hmm. <laughs> role, yeah. As we can see, there's a lot of role-playing to be done, just like ingrained in the system. It's not optional. It's it's right, right there, you know. And then what you're seeking after, you mentioned it, glory points. Now, this is what, for character advancement or, you know, what are glory points? Glory is essentially experience. So from your deeds, you gain renown, you gain glory. Everyone's talking about you. So if I flip to the back of my character sheet, there are certain one-off things that happen. If you get knighted, you automatically gain 1,000 glory because it's a big deal. Everyone knows that these people got knighted by this person on this day. If you get married, you gain glory equal to your spouse up to a thousand glory. If you're marrying someone famous, it's a big deal, etc. Now, the way that that works is there are certain ranges of glory. The higher your glory total, the more well-known you are in the realm. You may actually get bonuses to certain things like interactions right. with characters like oh wow you're you are sir so-and-so of the round table well of course i can open my home to you things of that nature but another thing that it does is every time you surpass a thousand points of glory so like where this character sheet is now sir aaron is on 2949 glory but in the game that he was in when i stopped using this sheet, he was going to gain another 125. It would put him over 3,000. When you surpass that, you get what is known as a glory point. A glory point can add one to anything on your sheet, even if it breaks the rules. So, for example, after a knight is, I believe, 25, it is impossible for them to increase their size statistic. You just cannot grow anymore. You get a glory point, if you're 35, your size goes up one if you want. Can break any rule to increase a skill, a stat, a passion, a trait, whatever. There's another way the mechanics work. You'll notice, looking at the character sheet, that there are boxes next to traits, passions, and skills. And several of them have a check mark in them. What that is, is if you either act in a way that is 100% consistent with that trait or passion, or if you have a critical role on that trait, passion, or skill, you get a check mark. During the winter phase, if you have a check mark, you are allowed to roll a d20. If that d20 comes up over what that the current value is, that skill, trait, passion automatically goes up one. As soon as you make the roll, you erase it, which is why you want to go adventuring. Because if you go adventuring, you have much higher chance of getting a check mark. Right. It is Technically possible for a knight that just stays on guard duty or whatever. Eh, okay, you get a check to this and this. Fine. But 
if you go adventuring is you have the much higher odds of getting what is essentially free improvement every year. The reason Sir Aaron's Valorous is 22 is because one, I rolled an 18 when I created the character. Then I got a couple of check roles where I was actually able to increase it to 20. And then for two years, I said, because he's almost at that chivalric bonus. (laughs) So I said, the heck with it. I'm going to go and make it there entirely on Valorous. You're known for it. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. There's something here in the book called ambitions. That's basically, okay, I want to become a Lord. How do I go about that? So it's, it's a, a goal. Where where do you want this character to end up? Do you want to be a knight of the round table? Well, if you need to be want to be a knight of the round table, there are these requirements. You have to meet those requirements. It's just something to focus the the player if they don't have something on on their mind already. It's okay, well you can try for this, but you need to be a, a round table knight has to be chivalrous. You cannot be made a member unless you have 80 or more in those traits. So, okay, if that's my goal, then I have to work towards that in order to meet my goal. So it's just a way for you to have some idea of where to put the points. I want to talk briefly about the more action-oriented elements, uh, combat, jousting. Uh, I Mm -hmm. imagine there's large-scale combat, you know, crusade-type stuff, you know, armies fighting. Does Pendragon handle these well, or is it very, very simple? It simplifies it. Let's just say night versus night combat. If you're in a joust, you're each on your horse. You have a spear tucked under because there's no initially there's, you know, in combat, there's no such thing as just a lance. It's a spear that you just hold under your arm. And then it's an opposed roll. An opposed roll is I'm going to roll my lance. He's going to roll his lance. Whoever succeeds but has the better roll wins and rolls damage. So, for example, if uh, my skill is a 15, let's say his skill is a 15, but I roll a 13, he rolls a 14. We both succeeded, but he succeeded better, therefore he's the one that rolls damage. Now I, because I did actually succeed, I get my shield in the way. The way the armor works is you have an armor type, which in in this character's case is 12-point reinforced chainmail. So that means 12 points of damage come right off the top. You don't take that at all. You get your shield in the way. That's another six points. So now 18 points gone from his damage roll. However, if you're just doing sword combat, it's whatever your damage score is, which is your strength plus your size divided by six. And you round as per normal. If if it ends up being 4.4, it's a four. If it ends up being 4.5, it's a five. My character has a 5d6 damage. I will get out 5d6s, roll them. That's my damage. However, if you are <laughs> jousting, it's not your damage, it's your horse's damage. So if you have a horse like Sir Aaron does, that would do 8d6 of damage. Whatever damage you take, regardless of your armor, whatever the roll is, if it's over your size, you're knocked down. Because you just got hit by something so hard that you get, in this case, you would get knocked off your horse. Now... In a battle, like if you're fighting with a sword in an actual battle, not a tournament or something, that one roll is figured to be you maneuvering around, getting just the right shot in. So it's not, oh, I swing, he blocks. It's not like a six-second time period. It's like a minute or two minutes of you dancing around trying to find an opening and finally swinging. 
It's not super hard-hitting, action-packed, but it it's pretty decent for deciding what's going on. Now, the reason I say about the the damage being reduced is you really need that. Because another thing, another derived statistic is your healing rate. Now, that's your strength plus your constitution divided by 10. So in Sir Aaron's case, it's a three. That's how many hit points you get back a week. That That's the part of it that's kind of... Uh more realistic you know it's like playing into the realism of it and also the way the romances were written as well the bedridden night it creates that annual adventure because you're 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 resting a lot of the time yes and if you get what's known as a major wound which means you take damage equal to or higher than your constitution score you get to check another box but this one says surgery needed that's not operating theater and things like we think that's that is something that only women in pendragon can do there is no way a male can ever or even a knight a female knight wouldn't know it either because it takes dedication and learning etc and once you get that surgery needed box you're done you cannot adventure again until the next year so you had better not take a major wound unless you have no, like I said, you're a backup character ready to go. Is there a lot of tension around the table because of this? I find like when a game is particularly lethal, every moment in a combat, you're even avoiding combat because th- this kind of stuff can happen, which would be at odds with your valor and what you know what must be done. But actual fear sets in. Yes, no, or is it less because uh, you've got your backup characters or what? Yeah, it's it's less because of the backups, and that's part of the reason that it's encouraged. In fact, there's something that I famously did, (laughs) which apparently you're not supposed to do. In the Great Pendragon campaign, you start out when Uther becomes king, so Arthur's father. And at the end of the Uther period, there is something that happens where after a battle, the most famous guys with the highest glory (laughs) go and they have a feast in the castle with Uther. And everybody else is just feasting outside. Well, everyone that's in the castle, and in this case, it was all three of the primary characters of Kurt, my friend Danny, and my wife. Well, everyone in that feast is poisoned and dies. And that's right out of the Arthurian lore. Well, knowing this was coming up, instead of two characters, I had them all initially roll up three, and they were all brothers. So you had Kurt had three brothers, Michelle had three brothers, Danny had three brothers. So when that oldest brother kicked it, you immediately have a backup. It's half and half as far as fear of getting this character hurt because I've been focusing on this character. And no, I wasn't very popular at that point, but I've been <laughs> focusing on this character. All my efforts been going to this and now either he's gone, I can't control him or he's dead. Now I have to shift over to here. So it's it's a fear of what will happen to that character. But it's also, oh, well, now I get to do something over on this one. I find it balances it out. Sure. But that's single combat. There is a way to do large scale combat because there are armies involved. Like I said about the uh, the conquest period, Arthur's army would fight King Lot's army, for example. And there's a whole book on how to do that. It's called uh, the Book of Battle in this You're essentially every round is an hour's worth of battle. And again, that's you taking your unit, 
you're strategically moving it. Where do you end up? Are you closer to the battle line? Are you further back? Did you break through? Are you going towards the enemy camp? Things of that nature. Very complex, but if done right, it adds quite a bit. Now, there are ways to get around that and just say, okay, you're in battle. We're just going to have you under this person, and we know where that happens. Therefore, you're going to have fights with this one, this one, this one, and then you're done. It depends on where the the GM and the players are comfortable with. I've done it both ways, and I customize it. Like, if Kurt is playing the game with us, he is a very, very detail-oriented gentleman, loves war mechanics. He he will solo play war games on his computer or even on a tabletop. He will have solo ways of doing it. So if he's involved, book a battle 100% no problem because I know on the player side he can handle it. If it's just more casual game, then yeah, I will, I will zoom in. I'll say, okay, well, your unit happened to be over here and not even get into all those mechanics. I like to do it based on, um, in the movie, how important is it? <laughs> you know, so <laughs> the climactic battle, you know, or something might be right. zoom out, more rules, more interest. But then if it's not that, you know, that crucial, then maybe zoom in or maybe a, maybe it's a zoom out and zoom in consistently and depending. Yeah, you have many options. So I I like how there's different types of combat where they treat tournaments differently than just, you know, normal play. That was one of my questions as to do they get the feeling right of these different chivalric adventure moments? And I will marry! Also, in the mechanics is ingrained, you talked about it earlier, all those family roles, all the stuff that's going to happen in the downtime. I have this conversation with other people uh, at times where... Like, I will criticize normal D&D for being too focused on treasure and monsters and fighting. And uh, and then people will tell me, well, you know, there's nothing in the rules that tells you that you can't play it exactly like Pendragon with, mm-hmm. you know, uh, all of this uh, role-playing and downtime and uh, exploration of character. My answer to that is, I agree, but if you read the rules... They are essentially focused on action and it's treasure lists. And it's, you know, it's like if if you read the rules, that is the focus that they are encouraging. And if you're Mm -hmm. a young player, 13, 14 or something, that's the kind of stuff you're going to want to do and will be doing because your sole inspiration is these books that kind of have that angle on it. So Pendragon, by also introducing all the virtues and passions and uh, and also all those family roles and the forced downtime that the game has, is encouraging you towards that other side, the role-playing as opposed to the rule-playing. So, so there is a difference in just the way a game is built. And I think Pendragon is, is much more encouraging of the role-playing aspect then some other games might be a bit more mechanical in their approach. Yes. So when you have a family role, if that's right in the rules, that's going to encourage you to... Uh, I would never think of my D&D character as having a family. <laughs> <You know? laughs> because you don't have that encouragement. But right. with Pendragon, you have to. You do. You In order to progress, really. Because if you think, like I said, it's if you follow the campaign book, the Great Pendragon campaign... Your initial night will not survive. Even if you have multiple initial nights, they will not survive to the end because they are already adults before Arthur is even born. 
the idea being you're going to have a grandchild or even a great grandchild at the battle between Arthur and Mordred at the very end. So you have to think about it as getting married, raising children, having something to pass down to your children, because your economic status as a knight will allow you, if you're higher up, allow you to buy better equipment for your child than you would have. So you're able to make sure they are better off. The way I run the game, we would have a day. This is our Pendragon day. And that would be the entire year. That would be going, you know, starting at court in the spring. Oh, this is what's going on. Here's the political intrigue, etc. And then go into this is the adventure you're going on this year. Wrap that up because they're not super involved adventures. They can be, but they're not normally. And then at the end, okay, everyone comes back and now everyone does the winter phase and we all do a round table together. So figure it like if you want to compare it to D&D, like doing a minor level of your character every session and then the next year, okay, you go on. And it's just, it's just something that we fell into being able to do because that lets you progress through everything and lets you see the growth. You get to see your character, your primary character is growing, but also... My son's turning 15. That means he's going to be a squire. I'm going to have him squire to my secondary character because squires, they're on their knight's character sheet and they get check marks. If a squire has to perform first aid on their knight, you could roll really well, get a check mark. Hey, free advancement for my character who I'll be playing in half a year. You're grooming that squire to eventually be your primary PC. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it's just like life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> it it is very realistic as far as one going on the adventure, being concerned with doing the adventure, but also home. What's going on at home? In Sir Aaron's case, that was kind of weird because his wife was actually a knight. <laughs> that was something that came about before my wife. I actually before I met her, he was on this adventure called the Adventure of the Five Ladies. One of the options you had was this Lady Knight. And this is Sir Aaron we're talking about. Lady Knight, that means it has to be a test of bravery. I'm going for the test of bravery. He and his NPC fought a wyvern, which for those not familiar, it's a, uh, a two-legged winged dragon. He and she, the Lady Knight's name was Delilah. They fought the wyvern, killed it, and he was magically transported back to the beginning. She was nowhere to be found. So when I met Michelle, she said, oh, I, you, know, you do this with your friends. I'd like to get involved. And she's very good at role playing. She came in and Kurt said, we already have a knight who's a woman. Let's make that her character. But I now had this quest. I had to go and find her. I had to get permission from my lord to say, hey, I want to go on this personal adventure and get leave to go for and typical thing is you're allowed a year and a day away from your duties to go do this went found her brought her back we shortcutted the courtship thing because she wanted to play we wanted to get it done and and you'd, you'd already bonded with delilah and exactly so we ended up getting married and this is where the game mechanics get fun because part of the game mechanics now my character's lord was Blamor Deganis, Count of Lambor. Well, someone else who's a Deganis happens to go by the name of Lancelot. Guess who showed up at my wedding? 
so I had a round table night too, because Blamore was also a round table night at my wedding. We go out and part of medieval weddings is, Hey, let's go on a hunt. So we all went out on a hunt and we're not in full armor. We're in hunting armor, just leather, got boar spears because we're going after some boars. We run across a small giant. I think it was a small giant. Let me see. No, he was a medium giant because I have my history recorded on the back of my character sheet. So he was a medium giant. We had his friend James, right? James was with us. His knight went up. I'm going to attack the giant. He rolled his valorous, made, went up to attack, and he fumbled, fell off his horse. The giant went to attack James, and the giant fumbled. So the giant invented golf using James's horse. But eventually we, we went and managed to kill the giant, so we got glory from that, etc. It was, it was a very interesting wedding, but it's, it's one of those things where if you have a system and a, a group of players where failure is just another way to have a good story, this is a great one to do. Over 20 years later, <laughs> I am able to recall exactly what happened and where everyone was sitting in the room when we were playing it. You are my husband. I must be king first. How did it compare to your actual wedding? <laughs> I didn't have any roundtable nights, but I did have nights. <laughs> did you? <laughs> we got married in the Excalibur in Las Vegas. And what happened was, Shell and I are fairly practical people. We decided, rather than have a big blowout extravagant wedding... Let's go to Vegas and get married. We will have her parents, her grandmother, and her sister come out. Have my parents and my sister come out for the wedding couple days. And then we would spend our honeymoon there for a week. I do hope that everyone listening to this who has gotten married is sitting down. Because our entire wedding, including the chapel, the license, her dress, the week in Vegas, first class round trip airfare in 2002, cost us $3,000. That is not a lot compared to... <laughs> that is not a lot. We got married in the afternoon. That night, my parents treated us to the joust, which is picture medieval times on a Vegas budget. So, yes, we had nights at our wedding. <laughs> so is this... You sent me a picture of a shield that you customized. Yes. Is this from that trip? From that... No, that's from a medieval times trip in New Jersey. Because there's a medieval times in New Jersey, and they had this shield. Now, anyone looking at the, the character sheet for Sir Aaron will see on the back page, there is a shield, a lion rampant. Now, that's a lion who is up on his back legs, and it is split on an angle. The top right half is a gold lion on a red field. The bottom left half is a white lion on a blue field. We're in medieval times, and I see this shield hanging up on the wall, and it's a lion rampant, but it's just bare metal. And it's for sale, and it's only $40. I was like, huh, that's my character's shield. I'm going to buy that. So I got it, and I got yellow, red, and blue acrylic paint, and I made Sir Aaron's shield, which we have now had for almost two decades and is currently hanging in our living room above our television. I'll put it on the, I'll put it on the, <laughs> the, the, in the show notes as well, because it's a, a pretty good job of it. I, I love like when you kind of produce a prop that that's based on a game. And this is pretty great. Also, it seems like Pendragon on a budget, <laughs> kind of your personal story. The future has taken root in the present. It is done. Let's just talk about products to recommend. So if somebody wants to play Pendragon, they're uh, an, an, edition that's better than another i mean there's 
probably one that's more available. Do you favor a certain edition? And are there source books or adventure modules that you'd recommend? The main thing that I've noticed, because Greg Stafford, who unfortunately died back in 2018, he was in charge of every single edition. And what? so if you look at any of them, they're going to be very, very, very similar to each other. But what would happen is he would work out the kinks each time. So I would recommend the most recent edition, which I believe is 5.2. I think it's available on DriveThruRPG as a, a digital download. Yes. That's the one I use. Uh, under the assumption that you're starting back in the time of Uther, but you can move things around. There are rules that you can say, okay, well, I want to play in the romance period when Arthur's in full power. Okay, well, just do this, this, and this. And it's fine. That is the only thing you actually need to play. I would also highly recommend the Great Pendragon campaign, which I mentioned several times already, because of that year-by-year structure. That gives the GM a very good idea of, this is what's going on in larger world. I can now customize the adventures I want to do, and every era in there has adventures in that book. These are appropriate for this time period. I can now customize, I want to do this with my characters. While that's going on in the background, or that they're involved in, depending. So that's highly recommended. And uh, the other one that I would highly recommend, and there there are many of these sub-source books that you can go in, like the Book of Battle I mentioned, the Book of the Estate. If I want to deep dive into that, go for it. But the one I would really recommend is called the Book of Knights and Ladies. And what that does is that gives you all of the rules to create knights or ladies, if if that's how you want to do part of your campaign, to come from anywhere in the Arthurian realm at any time period. So you can say, I want to be a knight from France in the tournament period. Okay, well, here's your here's your starting values, here's your equipment, etc. This is how you would do it. So that gives you a very wide range of knights that you can roll up and work into the campaign. And it will also tell you, if you're in this period, well, those aren't available. Let's say in the, um, it's called the Anarchy period. This is what happens after Uther dies, but before Arthur pulls the sword from the stone. No one's coming to England. No one wants to get involved in that. So you're not going to see anyone from the continent coming to England to be knights. That book allows a lot of customization needed. Most recent 5.2 edition of King Arthur Pendragon. Highly recommended Great Pendragon Campaign Book of Knights and Ladies. And I always end on lessons uh, that were learned thanks to this game. Obviously, uh, the industry learned something from the game because Ars Magica... Clearly, the wizard equivalent of this. It's got generational scope. You've got focus on having several characters. Uh, You're in a medieval setting. And downtime, where you're building up your magical college. White Wolf's mechanics, like, I can believe that they adopted this game at some point because their mechanics seem to have very heavily inspired on Pendragon. Uh, The traits, you know, the vampires have the similar kind of scaling to certain attributes that push you towards the dark side or the, you know, lose control of your character. This kind of stuff is in all of White Wolf's horror games. So there's obviously a big inspiration there. You know, it it has a legacy. Yes, yes, it does. And uh, 
I believe Call of Cthulhu is very similar as well, as far as the personality traits and skills and whatnot, because that was also a Chaosium game. The the insanity that you can lose your character that way. Right. Uh, and, and they're kind of contemporary games. But what lessons have you learned, uh, either as a GM or as a player of this game, that you've basically brought to your other role-playing endeavors? Well, the main thing, as far as a player, is the end goal. Where do I want this character to end up? Like, for example, uh, I played a cleric in a fairly recent D&D campaign. And I was going about it as, okay, this guy eventually wants to be in the hierarchy of the church. He wants to join that part of the organization. This is a way to go out and to administer aid to people, get them possibly converted, things of that nature. So that's how I was thinking about how the character was played, which comes back to the ambitions part of this. As far as the GM, I learned the structure as, okay, this is what we are getting through today. How I manage that to get it done, because I know we don't want the winter phase to bleed over in the beginning of next time, because that just dominoes all the way down the line. So how do I structure it to make sure that everyone's having fun and we're getting through what has to be done in order to not delay something later on. All right, pacing becomes really important. Yes, it does. All right, well, that was Pendragon. I want to thank my guest, the once and future king, Gene Hendricks, <laughs> for giving into his passion, giving us the, the details on Pendragon. I hope you got to say everything you wanted to say. And maybe, if not, well, here's your chance. And also, tell us what you've been working on <laughs> so people can find you on these here internets. Right now, I've mainly been focusing on doing voice acting and directing. Most people know my most recent endeavors as the showrunner of the adaption of Ron Randall's Trekker over on Two True Freaks. That's where my focus is kind of lying right now as far as where people can find me. And yeah, I think, I think I've covered everything on Pendragon. If anyone really wants to hear me ramble on more about it, you, know, you can always hit me up and we can do a special episode on maybe one of my shows. I don't know. The Hammer Strikes. Yes. And I hope people have discovered this game if they didn't know about it and are intrigued enough to check it out. Because it is an experience, I think. Yes. I mean, for me, it's, it's like secondhand a little bit, but uh, I, I can see it just from the rules and from talking to you. Thanks again. And stick around, people. I'll be back after the break with Game Master advice and your feedback on our previous episode. Hey you! Yeah, you listening to this. My name is Mercy St. Clair, and I'm a trekker. Not a very glamorous job, but not according to some group called the Akadekgonagon Theater Works. And me! I think your adventures can be very glamorous. Oh, come off it, Molly. What I do is dirty, dangerous, and frustrating. Maybe. But I know I like hearing about what you do. And now other people can as well. That's where you come in. Yes, you. The one I started talking to before being interrupted. Head on over to 8TW.Ninja and look for my adventures as dramatized by the Akadekagonagon Theater Works and some guy named Ron Randall. Or else... Mercy! Ron Randall's Trekker, a new audio drama by the Akadekagonagon Theater Works, presented through the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Coming summer 2021. If I 
I were Dungeon Master, I'd have it made. What an interesting proposition. Very well, I shall give you all my power to use as you will. This time around, a little less advice than it is a campaign idea, an inspiration from our discussion about Pendragon today. And that's the campaign that would be called the, the Family Saga, which you could adapt to any game. I have been known to make the most of my sizable RPG collection. We've talked about this on the show. And it's definitely in that vein. The players take on the roles of characters from the same family or from historically intertwined families at a certain point in history, much like Pendragon does within those few generations of Arthurian history. Every few sessions, the Game Master makes time move forward to another time period where the players play only slightly different characters, the descendants of their former characters. Like GURPS might make an excellent system for this kind of campaign because of all its historical world books. So you might start in the Ice Age, which is one of my favorites really, move on to Atlantis and its destruction, then to Greece, Imperial Rome, Middle Ages, Scarlet Pimpernel, Old West, World War II something modern like cops or special ops, and beyond to cyberpunk, something like Teradyne, which is a, like a low-tech space opera, and then Traveler, which would be the grand uh, space opera. An enterprising game master would surely be able to do the same with completely fantastical settings, perhaps as simply as making various D&D settings be different epochs. Uh, you know, what if the world of Greyhawk is merely the forgotten realms in the far past? Uh, much better would be advancing the politics, society, and magic technology ahead a few generations so that the world is still recognizable, but totally different in each era. Think of how Star Trek morphed into the next generation and beyond. Now, the beauty of this concept is that there is no reason you couldn't go back to a past era for a session with the old gang, even if you're past it in, in what we call the saga. Maybe you just miss your ancient Egyptians. I don't know. Maybe you make it part of the action as a reveal of a character's heritage. For example, a character might tell a story passed down from generation to generation. So I think there are three ways to link the various eras you use. One is to make the transition an important event in the era you're leaving. The Atlantis era, for example, might end with the characters narrowly escaping the island sinking and landing in Greece, setting up the next chapter. Their descendants captured by Roman hands might set up the Spartacus chapter uh, that is to come and so on. Then there's the family heirloom, a, a sword, amulet, a secret, a curse passed down through the generations would identify a character and its progeny and, and keep a sense of telling the same story. Some objects might not last, uh, you know, thousands of years, the thousands of years necessary, unless you make them magical. So Excalibur has been pulled out of the stone in many science fiction stories. Camelot 3000, anyone. And the third door you might walk through is the characters themselves. While each era would feature different characters, they'd be close enough to the originals that, one, you wouldn't be trapped in character generation hell every few weeks. And two, you could keep the sense of family alive. The sins of the father are visited on the child. Characters are doomed to repeat the same mistakes, uh, get into the same kind of trouble. You know, pile on the historical ironies. That's a little bit what they did with the Star Wars various trilogies. Subplots aren't abandoned when you make the switch. They are just ported to the next era in some familiar form. Character A and their descendants are all unlucky in love. Character B and theirs both lost a child, etc. 
you repeat them as motifs, but that keeps a, a certain continuity for the player. So what's the story? Each era has its own type of adventure. I think this is something that Gene was talking about with the different eras within within Camelot. So the premise is that the families of these characters have a long tradition of being adventurers, maybe even unbeknownst to them. Or if an heirloom is important enough, then it is the saga of that MacGuffin and how it survived through the ages, always surrounded by men and women of determination or action. The sky's the limit, and history is a long time. Arthurian romance is fairly limited compared to that, but imagine if you could stretch it out as long as you wanted. So this is me kind of encouraging you to play, if not Pendragon, in the style of Pendragon. I think that opens a lot of interesting doors. Let me know if you do or already have. Love to hear your experiences. Before we go, just a couple of comments harvested at fireandwaterpodcast.com, where I hope you'll leave comments about this episode. Our topic last time was GURPS Auto Duel and Obliquely Car Wars with my guests Put and Bert. And it was part of our Shift World, our GURPS Shift World campaign. So first we have one of the writers of GURPS Auto Duel, Christopher J. Burke, says shifting from the Old West to post-apocalypse isn't a stretch. Back in the 80s, I bought a DC supplement for Hex, which took place at a time when Jonah Hex was sent to the future. Uh, I never got to run it. I don't remember if I got to sneak in a reference to it in to GURPS Auto Duel or if we had to ignore other companies' stuff. Yeah, I have that module, but it's I think it's a solo adventure, so I don't know if you could run it or if you're just supposed to play it by yourself or, or maybe run it for just one other person. But good point. Jonah Hex got shift-worlded. <laughs> and maybe that's part of where I got the idea. I don't know. I don't think that was conscious on my part. Uh, Brian Linton says, I enjoyed this next installment of the Shift World campaign. It was particularly interesting to learn how you handled the transition from Old West to Auto Duel, both from a technical, that is to say, converting the characters, and role-playing standpoint, which is characters remembering bits of their past lives. I look forward to hearing how the characters continue to grow and evolve in future installments. He says, I also like your idea of introducing other games into your tabletop RPG sessions. I was a big fan of the game of life as a kid. As a result, using that board game in the character generation process intrigues me. I'm already thinking about how I could use my copy of the Star Wars game of life to generate characters for a Jedi-focused Star Wars RPG. I'll probably never do it, but that won't stop me from spending hours figuring out how I would do it. I've been through a lot of these projects where I'm just converting things to other things, or I like crafting games. And even though I never play those games, well, <laughs> the, the the hobby was actually making the game rather than playing it. The Fire and Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page, uh, remember, at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. So if you like this content and want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation. Let me also remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on the Fire and Water Facebook page on Twitter, where we're fwpodcasts. You can also listen to Let's Roll on Spotify. So until the next episode, let's roll! Let's roll!